I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to a few places. We're going to read three verses, but single verses, so be um, somewhat brief. Uh, But first, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Using one of the Bibles here, it's on page 61. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, uh, which is the third commandment. Our uh, catechism sermon today is going to be focusing again on this commandment um, as it deals specifically with oaths and taking oaths or swearing, in a sense, in the name of the Lord and how God's people ought to take oaths and how we ought not to take oaths as well and the importance of that uh, for our lives. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 is a reminder of that third commandment given to God's people who have been redeemed, who have been, uh, who have been shown his grace, and now are called to live in gratitude uh, to God. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I'm going to turn now to, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And here we find a, an application of, of, the, uh, of the third commandment. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Also, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. So turn, turning back a couple books, Leviticus 19, verse 12. Again, another application, very similar to Deuteronomy. It says there, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord, Yahweh. So far from God's word. We're going to turn to the catechism now, to uh, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 37. And that's in the back of the hymnal we had sung from. It's on page 890. So there's two questions there again, uh, fleshing out uh, the application of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord, Yahweh, your God, in vain. And here it's dealing specifically with oaths. And uh, we'll come to see why, um, at least briefly, we don't have too much time, but at least we'll see why spend so much time talking about oaths and what significance they are for our life, uh, but also for the society and the sustaining of and the society around us. So Lord's Day 37, question 101. I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answer. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and truth for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. Question 102, may we also swear by saints or other created things? No, a legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. So far from the catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Some of you may be familiar with what a touchstone is. 
Uh, I don't think we use them anymore uh, today, uh, but at least back in the day. A touchstone would be a, a, a typically a very dark stone, maybe jasper, that would be used to test whether or not um, gold or some type of fine uh, metal was, in fact, authentic and true. And so the gold would be scratched against the touchstone, and then another alloy of a lesser value would be scratched to see um, if they matched or, or did not match, to see if the gold was truly gold, that tested whether something was genuine. Well, in many ways, when we think about an oath, we can think about it as a kind of touchstone for the Christian life. You might say, why spend so much time on oaths, and why give an entire Lord's Day to oaths? Well, one, the Bible has much to say about oaths and their importance. Uh, But secondly, and the reason why the Bible has much to say about oath is that it is a kind of touchstone in the Christian life of whether or not our lives match Christ, who is the truth. Christ, who is the truth. Oaths are given for, as the Catechism reminds us, for the promotion of truth and trustworthiness. And again, the oath is a kind of touchstone for our own lives. And it begins to become something that we begin to scratch our own lives against to see, is truth something that I truly value and something that is truly defining of me as well as trustworthiness? Right? Those are qualities, those are characteristics that are to be true of us because we belong to Jesus Christ. Again, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so as our lives are called to be conformed to the image of Christ, We're called to grow in being truthful, grow in being trustworthy. And again, the oath, as we have this time to to contemplate and think upon it and to think about what God's word says about it, functions for us as a kind of touchstone. I think we can maybe deceive ourselves and to say, well, there's no falsity in me. There's no lies in me. And there's nothing of deceit in me. And yet again, as we come to God's word and come to his law, we are reminded Um, of our need to to grow in Christ, to see what Christ has done in our lives as he's made us a people who are true and and also people who are to grow in being truthful and trustworthy. So again, the oath is a kind of touchstone uh, for us to test the genuineness of our lives as we are found in Christ. And so as we think about um, an oath and what the catechism says and what um, the word of God says, foundationally about it. We're going to think about uh, three things. Uh, First, positively, what is an oath and when is it appropriate to take one? Uh, Secondly, some objections uh, to an oath that uh, people might uh, wage against them, specifically from Jesus' own words in in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, you shall not swear by anything, and so didn't Jesus say we should never take an oath? We'll talk about that. And then thirdly, uh, the role of the oath in Um, providing a stable foundation of truth and trustworthiness in society, in the state, even as as the catechism draws out that application for us, why it's appropriate for us to take an oath um, as citizens of a state and the nature of an oath um, as well. So kind of three, three points, first thinking about an oath positively, answering some objections, and then looking specifically at oaths in relation to uh, the state and their role in society. And so first, uh, the positive sense. What is an oath? Well, if I can quote Herman Bovink, and um, if you would like a book recommendation, uh, Herman Bovink, uh, his Reformed Ethics uh, were recently published. I was talking to Eddie uh, last week about them. He, he was asking where I got some quotes from. And so um, if you're looking for a, a solid, maybe not a beginner's, but maybe um, 
I don't know, a moderate level uh, book on reformed ethics and an exposition of the Ten Commandments, uh, Herman Boving's book would be useful uh, for you. The second volume, at least. The first volume is more theoretical, getting at the philosophy of ethics. But the second one is an application um, or an explication of the Ten Commandments. So again, what is an oath? Uh, Herman Boving says this, that an oath and the essence of an oath consists of an appeal to God as true, omniscient, and omnipotent. Right, so an oath, in its essence, is, is an appeal to God. It's why it's, it's put in the first table of the law. Right? It's, it's first and foremost saying something about my view of who God is. And it's an appeal to God as true, the one who is truth, the one who is light, the one in whose presence nothing of darkness, nothing of deceit, nothing of hiddenness is. Right? God is the truth. Right, so I'm appealing to the one who is true, and I'm also appealing to him who is omniscient, saying that as I make this oath, I know that he is the one, unlike any other creature on earth, who knows my heart. Right, he knows the, 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 my, my own intentions. I mean, he knows what's going on inside of me, that while I may conceal that from the world around me, and man cannot see the heart, but I know that God is omniscient. He is all-seeing, all-knowing. And therefore, he also knows my heart. It's this very attribute of God that is highlighted in Psalm 139. I know it's a favorite of my wife, uh, Susanna. Psalm 139, a very comforting psalm, uh, where it is the Lord who knows us, whether we are lying down or rising, whether we go to the farthest edges of the sea. There is nowhere that we can go to escape God's presence, not even into ourselves. You can't go into your own heart, into your own emotions, into your own head where you can speak to yourself, right, and think that God cannot see. Now, that's deeply comforting, especially in Psalm 139, because the psalmist there has false accusations made against him, and he recognizes that though the world may condemn me, yet before God, who knows and sees everything, I am innocent, right? It gives him great comfort. Um, But also here, when when we take an oath, we are appealing to God who is true and also who sees my heart, who knows my intentions and knows them more than I might even know them myself, right? Sometimes our own intentions eventually surface. We make a decision, we say something, and then eventually you realize, well, my intentions in that were not pure, they were not good, um, but yet God knew them even when they were hidden from us, right? God is omniscient, but also omnipotent, God is true, it appeals to God as true, it appeals to him as omniscient, but also it appeals to him as omnipotent, meaning that yes, he knows it and he sees it, and he also then is able and capable of punishing those who um, are untruthful, those who take an oath and, and, uh, under, uh, and, and end up um, really swearing to something that is false or something that is a lie. God is able, as one who is omnipotent, all-powerful, then also to punish those who sin, punish those whose oath is false or idolatrous. And this is important as well to think about even the oaths that we take. It's not merely whether a court, a human court, can determine whether somebody is right or wrong, if their oath is valid or if their oath was, was false. A human court could miss something. A human court may, may not judge somebody correctly. 
And therefore, one who is guilty may actually go free. Yet before the Lord, who is omniscient, all-knowing, and the one who is all-powerful, omnipotent, he not only knows our heart, and he knows our sins, and he knows whether we are truthful or not, but he is also capable and able and will punish such sin. Right? So an oath is in, therefore, when I take an oath, when I swear, I'm taking an oath as an appeal to God himself. May God be my witness in what I am saying. May God judge the words that are coming out of my mouth. And I'm appealing to him who is truth, who is omniscient, and who is omnipotent. The one who knows us and who punishes evil. Bavink also says that the oath is everywhere and always considered, therefore, to be a religious act. Right? An oath falls apart, it becomes an absurdity, if you have no God to appeal to. And we're going to see how a secular state really loses all truth and it loses trustworthiness in its citizens because as a secular state, by definition, it's secularizing. It's meant to push God out of the public sphere specifically. And so therefore, to remove God from the oath, the oath ceases to be what it is. The oath is to be a religious act. It's an appeal to God, who has made himself known as true, omniscient, and omnipotent. The oath is everywhere and always considered to be a religious act, a matter not of our obligation to speak the truth, but of our obligation toward God. Right? That's first and foremost, even in this commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we said last week how, how this ties together is that God's name is the sum total of his revelation of who he is. Right? God's name includes the fact that he is true. God's name includes the fact that he is all-seeing, all-knowing as omniscient. God's name includes the fact that he is omnipotent, able to punish uh, sin. And therefore, I am not to take his name in vain by swearing falsely. By swearing by his name and not keeping my word or swearing to something by his name that is not that I know is not true. And therefore, an oath, in its essence, is a religious act. It's an appeal to God as true, omniscient, and omnipotent. And we recognize not only is an appeal to God, but it can only be an appeal to God. That, that, that to properly take an oath can only be done by appealing as witness to the true and living God who sees us, hears us, and knows us, right? That's what we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Leviticus chapter 19, right? We are to swear only by the name of the Lord, by the name of Yahweh, even by the name of Christ, as Christ himself identifies himself with the Lord of the Old Testament. And God's people are given warnings at various points at this. You can turn with me to Joshua chapter 23 as an example. It's on page 197 if you, if you need that. Here Joshua is charging, uh, the, the Israel, um, charging Israel's leaders, as the heading reminds us. And it says there in verse 7, I shall begin in verse 6. He says, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, 
that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Now, one of the reasons, there's a number of reasons you could probably point to here, but one of the reasons is that to begin swearing by these other gods is, is to begin to attribute attributes that belong to the true God to these false gods. Right? If you begin swearing by the name of other gods and by other things, you are therefore claiming that these other things are true, and these other things know your heart, these other things um, can punish sin. Right? It's beginning to attribute things that belong to God and his name now to other gods. And so therefore God's people are called only to take an oath in the name of the Lord, in the name of God, even as Israel of old was called to do so. Because again, to take an oath in any other name is to begin to attribute to them the fact that they are true when they are not. To attribute to them omniscience when they really are blind and cannot see means the same thing. Or that they also are omnipotent, meanwhile they are impotent, right? It's to attribute to these things attributes that belong to God. And therefore, again, the oath is meant to be a very religious act. It's a touchstone that as I begin to recognize the oaths that I take and, and whether or not my life truly conforms to the image of Christ and where I might need to be growing in that, where I might need to, be, might need to repent of where I've, I've been deceitful. And where I am called then to walk by the Spirit of Christ in truthfulness. It has much to say about my view of who God is and who I am as his child. God is true, and therefore truth is to mark us as his people. And to think about an oath, again, begins to kind of prick us. It begins to rub against us. And it begins to require us to ask those questions. Is my life characterized by these very things? As I belong to Christ, who is the truth, am I myself truthful? Again, the oath is a touchstone for God's people. Just to give a few examples um, from God's word, um, probably just give one example here because uh, time kind of moves quickly here. Uh, Genesis chapter 21 of examples of God's people taking oaths in his name uh, properly and rightly. So here, uh, Abraham is taking an oath with Abimelech. And it says there, uh, verse 22, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as, as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned, and Abraham said, I will swear. Right? Just a simple example here that the Lord, that Abraham swears by God to this promise uh, with Abimelech. So just one example of many that you can find throughout the scriptures. So that's positive, positively thinking about an oath. Secondly, you want to think briefly about objections to oaths, specifically people that might appeal to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. So if you turn there with me to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He also has uh, something to say about oaths. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. It's on page 810. If you're using one of the Bibles here, at least. So Jesus says, verse 33... 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Right? So you might say, well, isn't Jesus here saying that no oath should ever be taken, that Christians should not take an oath? Now, we need to recognize here that Jesus is not making a blanket statement about oaths in general, right? A blanket statement. But rather, he's specifically calling out the kind of oaths that the Jewish people began to take in order to kind of circumvent the law, to keep the law but not really. Because what they would do is Jesus limits kind of the discussion here. He says, you shall not take an oath either um, by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head. Right again, he's saying here that, that the common practice in their day was that if I swore by something other than the Lord, well, then that oath is actually not binding on me. I don't actually need to keep. true that do not see and hear and do not, are not omnipotent, but rather they are only to take an oath in the name of the Lord, appeal to him alone, because an oath, their word, their yes and their no, was meant to be true. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It doesn't exclude taking an oath, but it means that we are not to swear falsely, swear by something other than God and say, well, because it's not God, therefore it's not binding on me. That's what Jesus is ultimately condemning here. It's the same exhortation that was received in the Old Testament. It's why he even quotes from the Old Testament, you shall not swear falsely. To swear falsely was to swear by anything other than the Lord and his name. Whether that was things that were religious, whether, as he points here, to heaven, uh, whether it is to the earth, whether it is to Jerusalem or one's own name. Those things are not ultimately binding. Those things cannot ultimately bring one to account and know the heart. And therefore, God's people are not to engage in such things. Our yes must be yes. Our no must be no. Our words must be true. And again, this is meant uh, then uh, to a, as an appeal when we take an oath to God as a religious act. So that's the objection. Um, you can also read in James chapter 5, uh, where James makes it, even in the 1800s, especially up to our own day, to remove the oath entirely, or to re- redefine or have the statement that one would take an oath to uh, be changed. Uh, for example, in Italy and France in 1882, these are examples from Ibovink gave, so they're a little bit outdated, but I'm sure they continue to be uh, the case. You may want to look them up. Uh, but this is what the modern uh, secular state uh, pushes to. In 1882, in Italy and France, you no longer swore by God, but they would say, I swear by my honor and conscience. By my honor and my conscience. Um, In Spain, it also became optional in 1883 to either swear by God or by one's own honor. Uh, The oath was was abandoned in Belgium and Switzerland. Um, Atheists in Germany tried to get rid of the oath entirely, uh, but instead they settled for a very uh, vague oath, I swear by the almighty and all-knowing God, so help me God. 
And uh, so you see this push against oaths in the modern state. And, but we need to recognize that, again, an oath has to appeal, if it's to have any foundation, any validity, it must appeal to God alone, who is Lord of the conscience. God alone, who defines honor. Right? You can't appeal to things that are human products in order to affirm an oath. An oath must appeal to that which comes outside of us and stands over us as a standard. And so the oath becomes a kind of absurdity in a secularized state. We could be thankful that even President Biden, right, he had sworn an oath uh, to uphold the Constitution, and he ends it by saying, so help me God. Now, we could say, well, that's not specific enough, but that's typically how U.S. presidents have sworn, so help me God. Now, remove that statement. You might say, well, what holds the president accountable to any of these things? Right? To remove God from the state makes an oath absurd. And if an oath becomes absurd then there no longer is a foundation for truth and trustworthiness among the people of a society and a state, right? You can see how everything begins to crumble um, apart. If I can give just four brief points here, I'll read them uh, so that they can be somewhat concise. Herman Bovin gives these as a few reasons. He says, The state and its system of justice needs a safeguard in order that people will speak the truth. The safeguard can't be found in human honor, conscience, or reason. It cannot lie within the person. It can only be found in God, who is perfectly truthful, righteous, holy, and omniscient. Right? This provides a safeguard for truth in society. Second, reason, honor, and conscience derive their absolute character from God. Take away God and their absolute character is lost. These things fully depend upon God so that without them... Um, we lose any, any safeguard. Third, an oath binds a person to God upon whom alone they are absolutely dependent and accountable. And finally, apart from God, there is no longer truth, justice, or goodness. At that point, good and evil, justice and injustice, falsehood and truths are human products with no power above humanity itself. The oath is the cement of the state of justice. It is the cornerstone of the edifice of the state, right? You can see how in a secularized society, to push God out of it removes any sense of truth and truthfulness and therefore, and justice as well for that matter, and anything, anything that requires a standard. And what only becomes um, the ruling um, attribute is power, is what humans say, is what maybe the majority says or those in control say, right? So the oath is um, vital for the life of a society. Finally, one more quote. Boving says, having separated all official power from religion, the modern state has become a godless state. Consequently, it must move toward abolishing the oath. This godless state in, is practically unworkable, and it leads to the suicide and self-destruction of the state. And this is why the catechism reminds us again It. All right, so we've looked at uh, the nature of an oath positively, right? We've answered some objections, and we've considered now the role of an oath in the modern state. And that now calls 
us as God's people then, that when we take oaths, that we might be a light in this world, that we might bear witness to the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ, who is the truth, and that our yes would be yes, that our no would be no, that never is it right for us to lie, because we recognize that our lives are lived always and ever in the face of God, before the face of God, quorum Deo. And therefore, right, as the people of God, we are not to engage in the tactics of a secularized state, of a, of a, of a secularized people, whose words are not trustworthy, whose words are not true, but our words, because we know ourselves to belong to God, because we know ourselves to have been saved from sin and misery that lies and deception lead to, and instead we've been set free from those things to know Christ, who is making us into his image. And then therefore he calls us in great joy to not be a people who need to hide in the darkness, but who have come into the light, into the presence of God, and to say that my yes is my yes, and my, and my, and my no truly is no. And therefore these are things that we are to grow in. Jesus Christ is the truth. We are being conformed to his image. God has redeemed us from lies and deception. He's called us to truth. And so as we rub ourselves against that, oh, the touchstone of the oath, right, we test ourselves. We see where we may need to return from our sins and from our lies and turn to Christ and look to him. Because where we were false, where our lives may have been marked by deceit, Christ is one whose life was perfect, perfectly true. He was truly the light of the world in whose presence there is no darkness. Christ was truth for us, and therefore as we are in him, we are called to go forth as a people who are true as we live before the face of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word uh, that corrects us where we need correction, uh, that teaches us your standard, and that gives us a means of living truthfully uh, with one another. So help us to grow in these things. Help us to grow into Christ, who is our head, that we may press on to full maturity, completion in him, that he might be glorified as we are a people marked by truth. We pray in his name. Amen.